It's a few weeks ago that I shared a story with uh, the folks gathered for the Sunday evening prayer service, and it so uh, fits what I want to say to you today, and I'm going um, to try to make my comments brief. My wife doesn't believe I can do that, but I'm going to prove her wrong today <clears throat> for your anniversary present. I'm going to prove you wrong on that. It's about Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher from England. <clears throat> Spurgeon had a great burden not only for sharing the gospel, but he had a real heart for orphans. Uh, and so he would look for locations to put his next orphanage. And so what he would do is he would ask the church to pray. Church, would you help, help, him, help, to, uh, help him find a place and a facility for uh, the next uh, place that they had for their orphans. And just like at Bethesda, Spurgeon would always say that the engine that drove his church was their prayer meeting. And that is certainly true here. You've heard us say it over and over. Anything that happens at Bethesda, in Bethesda, through Bethesda, it gets covered in prayer through those of you who gather with us to pray on Sunday evening at 6 o'clock. Well, Spurgeon also felt that prayer meeting was the most important meeting of, uh, of the people at his church. And the people would literally get together and pray heaven down. Is that a phrase anybody's ever heard before, pray heaven down? Well, they would do that. Spurgeon was looking for a home at a particular time for about 50 to 100 orphans or so and to give them a place to stay and to get them off the streets of England. He was walking through his area and he found a property for sale that he thought would just be the perfect home. And when he walked into the place, it just so happened that the, uh, that the realtor was there. And so the realtor let him see the property and, and showed him around, and it didn't take very long for Spurgeon to realize that this was the place he wanted for the next orphanage. And so he asked the, the realtor, he said, so, sir, <clears throat> what is the price of this property? And the realtor gave him the price in pounds, and it was just, uh, it was, it was just astronomical, completely, uh, completely out of reach for Spurgeon or his church to buy, and I don't have the exact number, but I think it was something like about 10,000 pounds, which was a lot of money in the 19th century, and it was clearly unrealistic for his church, just completely out of their league. And so Spurgeon um, looked around again, and then he looked at the realtor, and, and boldly he said to the realtor, he said, sir, I am prepared to offer you today 100 pounds. The realtor looked at him like he was crazy, and he said, I, I can't take that. He said, the, the owner would never accept it. And Spurgeon said, well, take it or leave it. It's my final offer. And so what do you think the realtor said? He said, well, then I will leave it because it's completely ridiculous. There's no way that I can even, I wouldn't even present that to the owner of the property. So Spurgeon walked away, and, and he, the realtor mocking him really the whole time he was walking away. So later that day, the owner of the home uh, who had hired the realtor called him and said to the realtor, said, so did you get any, any, uh, any activity on the property today? Did anybody show any interest? Did you get anybody that you were, and the realtor said, no, oh, except for this crazy preacher who came by. And, and he, wanted, he said he wanted to buy the property. The owner said, well, did he make an offer? If so, what did he offer you? Well, sir, I, I'm kind of even embarrassed to tell you because you wouldn't even believe it. It's so outrageous. He said, he offered 100 pounds for the whole thing. Can you even believe that? And the owner said, you, you got to be kidding, right? I mean, did he, did he see the property? Did he, he said, what was this preacher's name? 
And so since Spurgeon is, had left his calling card with the realtor, the realtor pulled it out and looked at it, and it's, uh, he said, it's some preacher named um, uh, Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And suddenly he got very quiet on the phone. And then finally the owner said, Spurgeon was at my house today. The guy said, yeah, you're talking Charles Spurgeon, the preacher, that has the church with the prayer meeting down the street. The realtor said, well, yeah, I suppose that's him. He's the owner said, and he offered you money for the house? The realtor said, yeah. He said, did you take it? He said, well, of course I didn't take it. Did you not hear what his offer was? The owner said, you better call him up and accept his offer because the way that church prays, they're liable to get it for free. You better take anything he's offered you. How many of you know prayer works? In fact, here's what I want to tell you. Prayer is the most powerful tool that we have been given as believers. To some people, it seems like a small thing or even an insignificant thing, but it's the most powerful tool we could possibly have because it is direct access to the very throne room of a sovereign God himself. Can I get an amen to that? I know that to some people, and I've talked to them, it makes no sense to some people, why we would gather on Sunday night at 6 o'clock as a church to pray. I happen to believe in the significance and the importance of corporate prayer. Obviously, we, can, we all pray individually. We should be praying every day. But I think there's something unique and special about coming together for corporate prayer. Some people I know think it's crazy that we would do that or even would call it a waste of time. But it must be remembered that when the body of Christ gathers to pray, it can literally shake heaven and hell and it can set people free. And what seems to some people like a little thing, like an insignificant thing, can actually put fear in the hearts of others. It put fear in the heart of that property owner because he knew somehow that prayer actually changes things. And what a testimony to that church that they, that they were known to be a people of prayer and that when they prayed, things changed. God let it be said of Bethesda. Amen. So when we pray on Sunday nights over those little prayer cards or when we pray corporately for whatever the focus is of that service, I want you to know it can literally change the course of events and change the outcome and change someone's life because that's the power of prayer. And if I didn't believe in that, I wouldn't ask you to come back at Sunday night at 6 o'clock. I know we're all busy. I, uh, we can talk about schedules a lot. I know we've got a lot to do. But I wouldn't ask you to do that if I didn't believe that God answers prayer, if we didn't have testimony after testimony after testimony of God's power to change things. It may seem small and insignificant to some, but it's the most powerful thing we possess. In my Old Testament reading recently, I ran across something that caught my attention. So turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings chapter 1. Some of you will know the story. Some of you, it may be new to you. But let me present to you the contrast of what the world considers to be the most powerful or what the world considers to be powerful juxtaposed to what God considers to be powerful. How many know that when God puts his hand on something, whatever it is, when God puts his hand on something, it is far better than anything the world has to offer. Do you believe that today? If God sanctions it, 
If God endorses it, if God blesses it, nothing is better. Say that with me. Nothing. Whatever God gives us, even the smallest gift has power in it. Even the simplest thing has God's power if God is the one who has given it. Why? Because when God gives it, there is authority behind it. Did you know that? When God gives something, it, with it comes his power and his authority. Well, 1 Kings is a historical book. And in chapter 1, here's what we see. That King David is literally on his deathbed. Now, I had the media department help me by getting some lovely pictures here. He might have looked a little different than that back in the, back in the day. But how many of you are like me? Sometimes you can read the Old Testament and, and, and you get caught up in the names and all of a sudden you think, okay, which one was the bad guy and which one was... The, has that happened to anybody else? Who was the good guy? Who was the bad guy? And all of that. Well, I've I just done a little graphic to help you keep the story straight here because there's some details that I want you, want you to catch. King David is literally on his deathbed. His life is ending. He's become frail, and the Bible even tells us in the first part of 1 King that he, he couldn't even couldn't stay warm. There was probably some sort of a circulatory problem, and it didn't matter how many blankets they put on him, he could, not, he could not keep warm. His throne is obviously about to be vacated, and there are two of his sons, and history lets us know he had probably at least 20 sons and some daughters, uh, but two of his sons... Both of them consider themselves to be candidates to succeed their father as the king. One is what we will call a wannabe, okay? And the other is the rightful heir to the throne. The name of the wannabe is Adonijah. Here he comes. There he is. He's the wannabe. Keep him as on that side right there. He is the son to David. However, he is going to rise up in the same spirit as his elder brother Absalom. And we know Absalom did nothing but rebel against his father and cause his father all kinds of problems. You'll remember that that, that uh, rebellion that Absalom, the older brother to Adonijah, it caused David to have to run and hide and do all kinds of things. So here in 1 Kings, Adonijah this next brother, he's about to rise up in that same kind, that same spirit of rebellion, while another son, Solomon, who is the rightful heir, he is the actual one, he's the rightful heir because he's the one of King David's own choosing. Solomon's just not going to do anything. He's going to chill and sit back and see what happens. So let's read the text here starting in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 5. About that time, which is about the time, meaning when uh, David was old and frail and in his deathbed and sick, about that time, David's son Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, began boasting, I'm going to make myself the king. So he provided himself with chariots and charioteers and recruited 50 men to run in front of him and in front of these chariots, as was the custom of the time. Now his father, King David, had never disciplined him at any time, even by asking, son, why are you doing that? Now, obviously, we see possibly David needed some parenting skills here. Adonijah had been born next after Absalom, and Adonijah was a very handsome young man. Adonijah took Joab, son of Zeruiah. Now, Joab was David, his dad's general, 
And here's what we see in the next couple of verses, that Adonijah, in his effort to take his father's throne, he's building his whole entourage here. He goes after his dad's general, Joab, gets him on his side, and Abiathar, the priest, into his confidence, and they agree to help him become the king. But there's another group of folks, Zadok the priest, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, Nathan the prophet, Shimei and Rei and David's personal bodyguard, they refused to support Adonijah in his effort to take the king. Now, you straight with the story? You with me? Don't go away on me here. So you have a son who, while his father is ailing, he's trying to position himself to be the next king and the heir to his father's throne. And this son, Adonijah, he's next in line to rebel against his father following the footsteps of his elder brother Absalom, who had done the same. So what does he do? Adonijah develops his own entourage. He gets his posse, and he creates his own party. It's a by-invitation-only party that he has because he's got his peeps that he wants to come and celebrate his self-imposed rise to the throne. But he is doing this of his own volition, He's doing this by his own will and not that of his father, David. And it was the responsibility of his current uh, King David, the current king, to declare who his successor would be. And he had done so, saying that he wanted Solomon. And he had not declared Adonijah to be his successor. It was to be Solomon. But here David is sick in bed and not able to do much of anything, really nothing at all. And Solomon is doing nothing either. He's just chilled out. So what's he to do? I mean, what is Solomon to do while his brother Adonijah is trying to take over? the? Is he supposed to raise up some kind of military offensive against his little brother Adonijah? Solomon was older than Adonijah, if I remember, if I get it right. Uh, Maybe I've got that backwards. I think he was younger. What's he supposed to do? Take over? Uh, Take that with some military? He can't do that because Adonijah's gotten the general from his dad's army on his side. That's why he can't do that. And what's David to do? He can't run again like he ran from his other son, Absalom, because he's old and he's sick in bed. So what does David do? All of his resources are away from him. He can't fight this thing militarily. He can't run away as he did before. But in typical form for David, he does something that is so crazy so outrageous that it broke up the by-invitation-only party and it terrified those who came to the party. And here's what's interesting. He did it all from his deathbed. David orders an action to be done with a weak beast that unbelievably terrifies Adonijah and all of his entourage and supporters. And now we read that Adonijah, uh, what Adonijah did to to acknowledge his self-imposed rise to the throne with his chariots and his charioteers and, and the 50 men to run in front of him. And there's every indication that this spectacle was outlandish that Adonijah put up. And the display of power and self-imposed regality was something to behold, all orchestrated by Adonijah, the wannabe king. But with all of that grandeur, all of the horses and chariots, Adonijah, 
the wannabe king who was usurping authority, he becomes afraid. Why does he become afraid? All because his father, David, gives the one who's supposed to be the rightful heir to the throne, Solomon, he gives him something. He gives him a mule. And from his deathbed, David gives his son Solomon the instructions. He's barely alive. He's in his last few, last few days of life. And he tells Solomon, ride through town on the mule. And here you have Adonijah, the other wannabe. Chariots ablaze. Fifty buff men. They've got to be buff if they run that much, right? Fifty buff men running running in front of him, declaring his, Adonijah's rise to the throne. I can see banners waving and the whole grandeur of all of it. And here comes Solomon on a mule. How many of you, like me, know what that feels like? Don't you know what it feels like to, to feel like a, a, a water pistol at a three-alarm fire? I do. Who, who, who's ever felt that way before? I had a situation like that that happened to me this year. Gerard's brother, Tony, passed away earlier this year. In fact, yesterday was his birthday, as I understand. And the funeral was in uh, Shreveport, where the family's from. So just to go and, and be with Gerard and Jovan, the boys, uh, myself and Pastor Brent and Chairman of our church board, Joe Howard. We all got in the car and we drove over to Shreveport for the funeral that afternoon. And we got there 20 or 30 minutes before the service started. And um, again, we just were coming to just let them know we were there and we loved them. That's why we went. So I, we walk in the vestibule of the, of the, of the church, the black church. And this, of course, it's crowded full of people. And one, I, I think it was one of Gerard's sisters that, that said, oh, Pastor Dan. They'd been here before Bethesda and recognized myself and recognized Brent and, and, um, and said, how are you? Great. And about that time, up walks to us this very well-dressed young gentleman who was the MC of the funeral service. By the way, it was the most incredible funeral service I think I've ever attended in my life. I don't know when I've been to a funeral service that when it was finished two and a half hours later, I didn't want it to stop. I wanted it to go on. It was just, it was unbelievable, everything about it. And so this gentleman walked up. He said, he looked at me, he says, are you Pastor Dan Smith from Fort Worth? I said, yes, I am. He said, you'll be speaking today. <laughs> I said, no. No. no uh, we just came to be a comfort to the family. Yes, that's why you'll be speaking today. <laughs> well, no, really, we just, we, we just came. And then he looked at Brent. He says, are you Pastor Brent Brunson, the music pastor from the church? Yes. You'll be singing today. <laughs> Brent went, oh. And then Brent said, well, what am I supposed to sing? And this young gentleman with his you know, little notes, he says, Gerard said, you will already have come with something in your heart, and you'll be ready to sing. <laughs> Am I telling the truth? So, I'm irritated because Joe got off scot-free. They didn't ask him to do nothing. <clears throat> Can he take the offering or something? 
So we go in and sit down. A traditional, you know, a traditional-looking church. Pianos over on one side, the organs on the other, and no one's playing anything yet. And so we go find our seats. We sit down a bit, and oh, what? What? We didn't plan on that. What? Didn't plan on this at all. And so, you know, before all of a sudden, I said to Brent, and Brent says, "I don't have a track. I don't. I don't have nothing." And I said, "Just," I said, "Brent, just, just sing great as I faithless. I'll play for you. You know, just, just sing that." He said, "Okay." A couple of minutes later. One fine young gentleman went to the piano on this side, and another gentleman sat down to the organ on this side. All I can tell you is the chords those gentlemen played, they only come straight from heaven. It was absolutely unbelievable. And about 60 seconds into them playing, I looked at Brent and I said, just have them play for you, that you'll be fine. There's no way I'm going to get up and play with those guys sitting there. So the service goes on, and it's magnificent. And then the way it was, the, you know, the MC guy, he got up, it came time for the various pastors, and because there were several siblings, and each of their pastors were there, and they were, he was supposed to, he's supposed to say something. I, I've come to understand that's, I think that's customary in, in, in a black church. And so he, he got up, he said, okay, first we will have Pastor so-and-so from, uh, from Shreveport possibly, and he is the pastor of this one and that one, and, and then he will minister to the family. And there will be Pastor so-and-so from, uh, from Flower Mound, and he is the pastor of this uh, family member. And then we'll have Pastor Dan Smith from Fort Worth, Texas. He's the pastor of Gerard and Jovan. So, okay, I'm number three. Got it. I don't know what I'm going to say, but I'm number three. So the first one gets up, and he does a nice job, five, six minutes or so, and, and that was great. The next guy gets up, and he ripped the roof off the place. He had every one of us ready to go to heaven right now. Including me. I really wanted to go to heaven right now. He gave the most incredible thought and concept. It was unbelievable. And now you understand, the, I mean, the, the, the congregation was so responsive. Literally, he could have preached the yellow pages and they would have been on their feet the whole time. It was absolutely unbelievable. And when he was done, he left them, and literally people dancing and shouting and screaming and carrying on, and that's the atmosphere as he turns around and walks away and goes back to his seat, and Brent looks at me and says, you're up, big boy. I felt like I was riding in on a mule. Right after the chariots. Just put the name Pastor Dan right over the cross, across the top of that. I felt like I was riding in on a mule right after chariots had gone blazing by. You know what? I have a feeling this morning that I'm talking to more than a couple of people who have been in a situation where others around you were impressing everyone with their metaphoric, with their horses and their chariots and their buff runners shouting their praises, 
and you've been in that situation where you didn't really look the part that you, uh, that you believed you had been called to, you didn't have a fraction of the resources of the others that were involved in the, in the situation. In fact, what you had to offer, what you had to bring was somewhat embarrassing when measured by the world standards. But here's what I want to say to you today. In fact, I drove to 4700 North Beach today, and I walked in these doors to bring you one message, and it's this. It's this. Let them keep their horses. Let them keep their chariots. Let them keep their runners. Let them keep it all, because any day of the week, I will take the mule if it comes from the king. And here's why. A mule from the king has way more power. A mule from the king has way more authority, way more promise, way more future than all the horses, all the chariots, uh, all the runners that could possibly be there. If the king gives you a mule, take that deal. Because whatever the king gives you, there is an authority behind that thing. There's more power in the king's mule than in men's inventive and cute ways to try to take charge of something. Look with me at what happens. First Kings chapter 1, verse 38. Here's Solomon's support group, the one who should be the, the next king. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah son of Jehoiada, these are the guys that were not invited to Adonijah's party, and the king's bodyguards took Solomon down to Gihon Spring with Solomon riding on King David's own mule. There, Zadok the priest. There's something about this moment that is magical to me. There, Zadok the priest took the flask of olive oil from the sacred tent and anointed Solomon with the oil. Then they sounded the ram's horn, and all the people shouted, Long live King Solomon! And all the people followed Solomon into Jerusalem, playing flutes and shouting for joy. The celebration was so joyous and noisy that the earth shook with the sound. You wonder what I think? I think the Lord was tapping his foot to the party, and he was having a good time and enjoying it. And so it made the earth shake. Adonijah and his guests heard the celebrating and shouting just as they were finishing their banquet. When Joab, the general, heard the sound of the ram's horn, he said, what is going on? Why is the city in such an uproar? And while he was still speaking, Jonathan, son of Abiathar, the priest, arrived. Come in, Adonijah said to him, for you are a good man, Adonijah, and you must have some good news, surely. Verse 43, not at all, Jonathan replied. Our Lord King David has just declared Solomon to be the king. The king sent him down to Gihon Spring with, with Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, protected by the king's bodyguard, and they had him ride on the king's own mule, and Zadok and Nathan have anointed him at Gihon Spring as the new king. They have just returned, and the whole city is celebrating and rejoicing. That's what all the noise is about that you're hearing. 
What's more, Solomon is now sitting on the royal throne as king, and all the royal officials have gone to King David and congratulated him, saying, may your, God, may your God make Solomon's fame even greater than your own, and may Solomon's reign be even greater than yours, is said to David. Then the king, I love this moment, bowed his head in worship as he lay in bed. Did you know you can bow your head in worship as you lay in bed? Even when you're sick, even when you're frail, when you feel like you don't have a bit of strength, you don't even have the strength to get up and get out of bed, you can bow your head and worship. And he said, praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who today has chosen a successor to sit on my throne while I am still alive to see it. Oh, bless the Lord, he said. Then all of Adonijah's guests jumped up in panic from the banquet table and they quickly scattered. Now, those of you who would like to dig a little deeper, get your commentary out and look up verse 49 and 50. There's some interesting reasons to why these things happen. I'll tell you this, this much of it. His guest, Adonijah's guest, got up and ran away because you know what? They were now in fear for their lives because the guy they supported is no longer, is not the king and not going to be the king. Solomon's going to be the king. And Adonijah was afraid of Solomon, so he rushed to the sacred tent and he grabbed onto the horns of the altar. Go study that this afternoon. Verse 50, why did he go grab the horns of the altar? What seemed to be a powerless, no way to win situation for Solomon. He has no army, he has no physical ability, he has nothing here. But the mule beats the chariots hands down because the king ordained the mule. He takes something that's a beast of burden. But when the king puts his hand upon it, let me tell you, when the king puts his hand upon anything, there's power behind it. No matter what it is. You can have all the money. You can have all the position. You can have the corner office with a window overlooking the skyline of Dallas and Fort Worth. You can be the leader of 10,000s of people. But if God stretches forth his hand and says, uh-uh, that's not how you have authority and power over everything else. Let me tell you this. God can put his hand on a little thing. God can put his hand on what it seems to be an insignificant thing, a waste of time thing, even like prayer. God can put his hand on that, and he says, that's how you stir a nation. That's how you change a city. That's how Charles Spurgeon bought a piece of property for 100 pounds. Hallelujah. Somebody say hallelujah in this house today. You can own all the real estate of downtown Fort Worth. Your last name could be Bass. You Fort Worth people know who I'm talking about. And it still doesn't have more power than the single mom who's in this room this morning at this very moment who is seeking the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords just to get through today and tomorrow and this week. God says, I'll anoint that single mom's prayer way more than the resources of all the powerful people. Hallelujah. 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 You can have all the resources. But if you don't have what God has put his hand on, it means absolutely nothing. Adonijah had everything in place. He had the right people. He had all the cool people. He had the chariots. He had the horses. He had the army. He had the general of the army. In fact, look what Nathan said in verse 24, back up just a bit, when he was filling in King David on what his son Adonijah was trying to do. Someone comes into David's sickbed and says, do you know what your son Adonijah? Nathan said, my lord, the king, have you decided that Adonijah will be the next king and that he will sit on your throne? 
Today he has sacrificed, look at all he had, many cattle, fattened calves, and sheep. And he's invited all the king's sons to attend the celebration. Didn't invite Solomon. And he also invited the commanders of the army and Abiathar the priest. And they're feasting and drinking with him. And they're shouting, long live King Adonijah. Look at what all he did, what all he had. But David, laying on his deathbed, said, no, that's not how this is going to go down. That is not the plan. For you see, David, the man after God's own heart, knew something about God that nobody else in that moment seemed to be realizing. And even when David heard from Nathan all that Adonijah was trying to do, and haven't you and I been in that situation where you got overwhelmed at all that somebody was trying to do, and it looked like they had all this energy and all this resource and all this steam going behind their thing that was coming against you. But David understood it, and here's within his heart, here's what he was saying. You know what? Laying on his deathbed, he can can do all that stuff. He can have all that stuff. Let the world be impressed. Go ahead and wow everybody. Put it on Facebook. Get all the likes you want to get. But when the king puts his hand on one simple thing like a mule, all of that stuff means nothing. Nothing. Somebody's heart needs to be encouraged in this house today. I have no idea who I'm talking to. I just know I'm talking to somebody. Listen to me. You may not have the resources to stop the other person. You may not have the military to stop them. You may not have the finances. You may not have the health to stop them. But if the king puts his hand, as we know he does, on this little thing called prayer then you've got to know that God has given you, dear friend, something that is greater than resources, greater than money, greater than anything else that they might come up with on their own. And today, you can lift your voice. You can stand up and bless the Lord and say, God, looks like i got nothing here and they've got everything. But God, you can do it because the mule is greater than the horses. For little is much when God is in it. Somebody say amen to that today. Simple lesson here is this. The king touches it. It has power and authority. It doesn't matter what anyone else has. So dear friend, when you feel like a water pistol at a three-alarm fire, when you feel like all your resources have been exhausted when you feel helpless, when you feel woefully inadequate, when compared to others around you, you don't seem to have what they have, I want you to remember that God has given you a little mule called prayer. It's something he has placed his hand upon, and it's the way he has provided for you to ride into town and see the incredible handiwork of your God. By the way, there was another man who rode into town on a mule. And he came as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And you have more power and more authority on your knees in prayer than all of the others around you who seem to have it all together. Let me tell you this. Here's the lesson. Go after the thing that God has put his hand on. For who can stop the Lord Almighty?
But as I close, I'm closing, Becky, as I close. I want you to remember what Paul gave us in Philippians 4, 6. He said this. Can you put it up? There you go. Don't worry about anything. Those of you who walked into this room today, bowed down with this week. Those of you who have no idea how you're going to face tomorrow. Those of you who feel like everything in the world is coming against you. Let's look at what Paul says to the Philippians. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and then thank him for all he has done. I just have to wonder in this house today how well we have thanked him for all he... You know what? We tend to say, I'll thank him after he, I'll thank him after he does what I've asked him to do. Isn't that quietly our, our thought process? When he does it, when I finally see the victory, then I'll be ready to give him thanks. No, that's not what the Bible says. Thank him for what he has already done. And I pray within every one of us today, before you put your head on your pillow tonight, you will find it within your heart to say, God, for all the things that you have done that I haven't even acknowledged, for all the things that I, I can't even see, for all of that, Lord, I thank you for blessing me. I thank you for protecting me. I thank you for what you have done. Bless the Lord. What's Paul telling us in Philippians, that little verse? Don't worry, but pray. He says, there's your answer. And there's your mule. Go get on that thing and ride it. And you can tell God, God, I've got nothing to work with. God says, perfect. I can break through an entourage. I can bust up a by, by invitation only party. I can get you past all the flashy stuff. Just leave it to me. Never forget, church, you are a child of the king. His royal blood flows through your veins. You are a child of the king, and he never forsakes his own. If all you have is prayer this morning, it's enough, and it's all you need. Stand to your feet. We are so glad that we can say today, our Father, that our help comes from the Lord. And by the way, when we say that, we're speaking of the one who made the heavens and the earth. We're speaking of the one who all power is in your hand. We're speaking of the one who can override all of this world's systems, all of this world's resources, who can override all of that and cause your purposes to be accomplished. You knew how to get Solomon on the throne, and you know exactly how to get us to our destination in you. For that today, we bless you. And Lord, I ask today that your grace will be upon every one of us to seek you with all of our heart. Let us come with thanksgiving before your throne. Thanks for the things that we see that you've done. Thanks for the things we've not even seen. Lord, let us just be filled with thanksgiving today in our hearts. For our God is greatly and he's great and he's greatly to be praised. So we bless you for that today. Just by an acknowledgement to that, is that prayer for anybody in the house today? Who feels like you need a mule to ride in on somewhere? Come on, let me see. Is that anybody in the house? Anybody in the house? Lord, bless them today. You know exactly what they have need of. You know exactly what they're facing. 
Thank you, Lord God, that you and you alone are able to do it. So I commit them to you, and we are going to wait to hear the incredible testimonies where we find out that our God reigns and he rules over this, over this earth. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Prayer team, I want you to come quickly and get in your place. If anybody today says, you know what, Pastor Dan, I've never accepted Jesus. Come on, prayer team, where are you? Move quickly. I've never accepted Jesus in my life, and I want to get saved today. It can happen just like that. Somebody says, somebody brought me to church today, but I need to know that God that is so incredible. I want to know him. Let these folks come and pray for you. Maybe you are one of the ones who just raised your hand just a moment ago. And you said, Pastor, I'm facing something that I've got to have God come through for me because I'm overwhelmed. Let somebody pray for you today. Come on, as we sing, step out from where you are right now.